This is JudoCast. We go to the mat and beyond with some of the most prominent minds in judo. Please welcome your host, a two-time Pan American champion, entrepreneur, and judo enthusiast, Chuck Jefferson. I took this trip to Japan and um, I just loved judo, you know, like it was, it was just a great experience being training at Nichidai. Um, it was just such a wonderful experience. I wanted it, I wanted more of it and I knew I could get better if I, you know, that's what opened my eyes up to really what judo was about. Our next guest is a four-time Olympian and a three-time world medalist. He was the coach of the 1996 Olympic team in Atlanta. Arguably, he was one of the most successful athletes in the history of American judo, becoming the first American male to win a world title in 1987. Determination, with a fierce work ethic on and off the mat, proved to be the game changer as he made the transition and parlayed his success into the business world. We will hear the story from the humble beginnings of an eight-year-old kid in New Jersey to a man who has achieved the highest levels of success on and off the mat. Bigger than the medals are the way he carries himself through life. From the humbleness he learned from his father, to the work ethic and tenacity he learned from judo. Please welcome world judo champion, Mike Swain. All right, Mike Swain, uh, thank you very much for coming on to the judo cast. I appreciate having you here today. I know I've been uh, talking to you a while about getting this thing going, and here we are on episode number two, my first episode, which was with your good buddy, Keith Nakasone. And uh, I appreciate you, you know, spending some time with us and, uh, and, and doing the podcast for us, but uh, thank you for being here. Chuck, great. No, thank, thank you for being here. Um, glad you're doing this. It's been, it's, it's well overdone. I, we've been talking about this for a long time, but uh, you're, you're the right guy to do it. So. Well, since Joe Rogan went out and signed the big deal, I thought, hey, podcasting <laughs> is real now. So um, yeah, most of our listeners, I think they probably don't need much of an introduction to uh, Mike Swain as uh, all of our listeners are judo enthusiasts like myself. And um most people do know Mike Swain, and they do know the history and the accolades and, and all the success that you've had, but I, I wanted to bring you on and, and take things beyond the mat is kind of what the, uh, the motto and the, the objective of this podcast is to show the success and, and the things that, you know, a lot of successful judokas are going on, you know, outside of the dojo and how they've gone on to do many great things in life as you have, so... Um, we're just going to start off right in the beginning and, you know, talk about your judo career and how you got started. And, um, did you start judo? Did you have family members in like, were your parents judo players or? Uh, no, none, none of my parents or none of my, uh, immediate family were ever did judo before. In fact, I didn't even know what judo was. And then, uh, you know, one day uh, I came back from playing football. We used to play these football games in the park, Sandlot football. And, um, you know, just a kid, I was eight years old and, my uncle was over and they were, he was kind of like having a meeting with my, my parents. I, I was my brother too. We, we both walked in and, um, and basically they were saying, Oh yeah, you know, like uncle Jim said, there's a, there's this judo school down the street and like, you know, we'd, we'd like to enroll you guys and you know, blah, blah, blah. And I, I had, I didn't have really, really a clue what it was, but it sounded cool. You know? So, so I was like, I was like, sure. And then, you know, I think about maybe eight kids in the neighborhood uh, all joined in. These were like just kids we were playing with outside and they all wanted to do it because we started talking about it. 
And um, so, yeah, just one day, you know, we all went to the dojo and, and, and um, probably about three months later, I was the only one left. <laughs> they all quit. <laughs> I think my childhood is, is similar. I had a dojo that was right near my house. So there really was nobody in my family. I just happened to join judo because it was there. I didn't know the difference between judo or karate. And it just kind of happened by coincidence that there was a judo school next to my house. So that just, you know, fortunately that that's how things worked out. But um, so when you started judo three or four months later, your friends are dropping out. Are you kind of like, you kind of feel natural judo kind of in the beginning? Or? Yeah, I, 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 th- I was comfortable with it. I mean, you know, I started, <clears throat> there was two guys, this uh, Rick Miola, who was my, my sensei, and then Tom Sebasti. There was two, two, and they were young at the time. They were in their 20s. They started the judo tech in Colonial, New Jersey. So it wasn't actually super close. You know, my, my parents, my mom had to drive me like 40 minutes, you know, to, to judo practice. You wow. know? So, so it was, you know, she had to drive 45 minutes, uh, you know, wait an hour, hour and a half, and then drive me back. So you really, I, you know, she supported me a lot. In the this beginning. was your first dojo, or this is after you switched to a different dojo? No, this is the first, first. So you're driving 45 dojo. minutes to the first dojo. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So she was super committed. So, you know, I, I, and it was fun, you know, it was fun for me. You know, I, I just remember I was somewhat good at it. I, you know, I, I guess, I don't know if I, you could call me a natural at it, but I, I had fun at it and they made it fun. Um, and then, uh, you know, as we started getting into the competition end of it, I think a lot of the kids quit or maybe it was just too far away, you right. know, maybe their parents didn't want to make that, that haul, you know, I'm not really sure, but, um, my brother and I stayed in it for a while, well, probably about a year. And then, and then I, I, my brother went into music and I, and I kept going with it. So you're driving, I mean, I talk a lot about this in my dojo now about the parental commitment, because I have a similar story. I mean, I wasn't so far from my dojo, but I, looking back as an adult, I look at the commitment that my parents made to my success. And, and I think that uh, a lot of parents do get it because I have a lot of extremely committed parents. And, you know, some people are like, wow, the drive is like 12 or 15 minutes now, you know, move, moved locations. But it's the parents that make that continued sacrifice that like ends up with these results of like, look what you went on to. I mean, I highly doubt when you were eight or nine years old that your parents thought that this was something that you would do for the rest of your life, but it just, their commitment allowed you to find your right. passion. Right. I think so. And you know, I, actually this was 1968, right? So you think about now, you know, with all the riots and, and things that are going on, 1968 was, was much worse, right? At, at, you know, at least at that moment, it, it was much worse. Um, and maybe, you know, that's why they, they took me there. Maybe it was... Maybe that had something to do with it. I'm not, I never really talked to my mom and asked her about that. Yeah, they were trying to find ways to keep the eight-year-old Mike Swain off the streets. That's right. (laughs) Keep him disciplined, you know, uh, self-defense, you know, confidence. I think confidence was the main thing because my uncle was a, was a drill sergeant in the Marines and, um, my first, uh, uh, Rick Miola was also. So, so I think it had a lot to do with just discipline and confidence and helping kids out, you know, you know, getting kids on the right path. Not that I was, you know, uh, need, needed a lot of discipline, but at the time, I think, you know, 1968, it was a good thing to do, you know, put your kid in judo and right. uh, so he can take care of himself, maybe. I find a lot of kids that, you know, come to judo, whether it was their idea or their parents' idea, I think there's tons of different reasons that people end up in martial arts. And then in hindsight, we look at all the values and the things that we gain through our training. And that's that's another part of this podcast that I really enjoy because I think that that's what's missing in the day-to-day practice of judo is like, what does judo really do for you as an individual? 
when you're 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, when you're a teenager, it's hard to see at the time, like the value and the benefits that you're getting as a human being. Looking back, you know, 10, 20 years later, I think that those values become more obvious. And, and I think that that's what it, it's hard to kind of articulate those ideas in a day-to-day practice when you're dealing with kids. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely, you know, just judo class itself, you know, I mean, actually every weekend or actually once a month we had the, you know, the, the competition that the in, in dojo competition, you know, blue, we, we had these patches, blue angel patches and red devils. So it was the blue angels versus the red devil every month, you know, we'd have a team tournament and, uh, it was tough, you know, it was like it, you didn't want to let your team down. And then you learned a lot of things about, about, comp- you know, winning, losing. Um, also, you know, there's the kids who, who were a little bit more rambunctious, you know, they picked on you a little bit, even during judo practice. And you had to, had to kind of learn how to, how to deal with, with other kids, you know what I mean? And right. of course there's all supervised, you know, with a, with a teacher there, but at the same time, you know, you're, you're learning all these things that, like you said, you don't, you don't know until you get older, you know, that, that how you learn it or why you learned it. But then, then you realize looking back. Sure. So at what point did you end up, I know that your, your instructor that everyone knows of other than uh, Miola was, was the late Yonesca, who was the sensei that kind of took you from, you know, what, how old were you when you ended up training I, with Yonesca? I was about 14 when Rick Miola died. Oh. He was only in his 30s and, and he had a heart murmur, not a heart murmur, he had a pacemaker. So he was pretty young, you know, and he had a heart attack and, and he passed away and then the dojo kind of fell apart. But both uh, Mr. Sebasti and, you know, Rick Miola, they were both from, they were both students of Yonesca. So they kind of broke away from UNESCO, started their own school. And in fact, we had friendly competitions, you know, with Cranford Judo and Karate Center. And so when they, when that dojo kind of, you know, fell apart, um, then I went back to Yanni, you know, like I went to Cranford, which is where they're from. And um, that's kind of when my career, you know, it was a much, it was a tougher, you know, dojo. There was more mentors there, like Alan Kodge, who was a uh bronze medals in, in Montreal, you know, who actually was probably one of my biggest mentors ever, you know, like he took me under his wing and, you know, trained me hard. And then he's the one who kind of suggested I go to, go to Japan and and train. So this is at 14. At what time did you think, is there a time that you can remember where your parents realized like, Hey, like, you know, Mike is really taken to this sport. Like, were you doing good at tournaments or junior nationals? At what point did they say like, we think there's a, there's more of a future in this than we originally thought. Yeah. I mean, I was doing, I remember my dad telling, telling, uh, my, my mom, you know, Rick Miola came, she, my mom came back cause she always used to drive me. So she came back and, you know, she said, Oh, Mr. Miola said, Mike's going to be, you know, the next national champ and, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, my dad's like, yeah, right. Like he just wants it. He wants me to pay him another one year, one year tuition. <laughs> and I just remember he was laughing. And then when I went to Yanni's, you know, Yonesca's, um, then Yanni started saying, Hey, you know, your son's pretty good. And, you know, like, you know, I was wrestling too at the same time. So it was a challenge going from wrestling practice to judo practice. And, Every time I missed judo practice, he would he would get upset with me, you know, even if it was right after wrestling practice. And a lot of times I was doubling up. But um, uh, anyway, you know, so finally, I think in 1977, San Francisco, California, it was the trials for the world universities. And I was only 16. 
And it was a long shot, but, you know, uh, but I made the team, you know, like I, I was a member of the world, world team at 16. I remember beating this guy, Jimmy Martin, who was kind of 27 at the time. He's great competitor, you know, very, very good. And, um, I threw him with like a, I don't know, Ochi or Osoro. And, uh, at the same time, I, this guy, Yosh Uchida, <laughs> this guy, <laughs> Coach Uchida, you know, was was watching this tournament and he was the head coach at San Jose State. And he came running down afterwards and said, hey, you know, wh- I want you to come to San Jose State next year. You know, and I was like, well, I'm a sophomore, you know, like. <laughs> he so goes, this well, was for the world team. This was for the world team. I made the 1977 world team and, but it was canceled. It was b- going to Barcelona, Spain. And f- for some reason they canceled it. I, I don't. I think it had to do something with the Chinese not recognizing the Taiwanese flag or something. I'm yes, not sure yeah, we actually went over this uh, when I was speaking with Keith because Keith was uh, also missed that team, and that was what he was claiming. Now, Keith is a few years older than you, and uh, that was kind of his prime years. Where in that '77, he was hoping to get to go to the World Championships, and he, he made that team. I he think. made that yeah. team, but he didn't get to go, and it was uh, the Spanish refused to recognize Taiwan as a country. Is what it kind of oh, came that's down. what it was. Yeah, and the IGF yeah. ended up canceling the event. Yeah. So, so, um, so yeah, we talked a little bit about with Keith about 1980. So I guess the difference between you and Keith is that Keith being a little bit older, like it was kind of more in his prime, but you were just kind of up and coming. So you come in at, uh, I mean, the 1980 Olympics, you're, you're only 20 years old. So you're at the beginning stages of like this career that you obviously don't know to what extent this career, where this is going to lead you. But at 20, you're just, I'm sure you're full of energy right. at 20. You're training with, with Keith, I assume, and, and other people at San Jose yeah. state. Yep. I was actually 19. I was about 19. Yeah. Cause I was just, I actually right out of high school, <clears throat> I went to Japan. So I took the first semester off of San Jose state and I went, well, I didn't even know I was going to San Jose state to be honest with you. I, I had a, um, a kind of a partial scholarship to Lehigh university for wrestling. Cause I had take sec, I took second in the, in the States of New Jersey for wrestling, which, which is a tough state, right? For wrestling. New Jersey's still one of the toughest. Yeah. Yeah. So um, and I lost in the last couple seconds. I mean, I, it was a tied, tied match, and then he scored on me in the last five seconds. But anyway, um, so I, honestly, I was going to wrestle. But at the same time, I, I, I took this trip to Japan, and um, I just loved judo. You know, like it was, it was just a great experience being training at Nichidai. Um, it was just such a wonderful experience. I wanted, I wanted more of it, and I knew I could get better if I, you know, that's what opened my eyes up to really what judo was about. 1978, I think it was, I went to the Kano Cup. I went to Argentina and the Kano Cup. Those were my first two international tournaments. And the Kano Cup was just one mat, you know, at the Budokan. And that was it. Just like the Olympics were going to be last year or will be in 2021. It's one mat at the Budokan. And, um, it was very uh, nerve wracking, you know, and it was funny cause it was the seventies and I went and I had kind of long hair, you know, I was in high school and I got there and everybody had their hair in crew, you know, everybody was crew cuts. <laughs> right. <laughs> I felt so out of place, you know, but I, but I was the only American to win one match. Like the whole, everybody lost their first round except for me. I beat some Hungarian guy. I don't even know. I think he might've been European champion. I'm not sure, but right. I beat him and uh, that was it. You know, then I lost to... Um, Sahara, which is 27 year old, probably Godon at the time who just killed me, you know, threw me all over. He couldn't throw me. So he picked me up with Tomonagi and 
jammed my shoulder into the mat like three times. <laughs> I came off the mat. I had like a, like a bulging shoulder, <laughs> right. separated shoulder. They, they were they were just laughing at me. But anyway, yes. So at that moment, I realized like, okay, if I'm going to get serious for judo, I need to go back to Japan. You know. So when I came back from that trip, actually. Um, Yo Shichita called and said, hey, you know, we want you to come to San Jose State, you know, for the spring semester. Um, which is when the Olympic trials were the taking Olympic place, right? Were. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, I can train. I could, you know, so I, I flew out there way overweight, you know, because Japan, I was, I gained so much weight because there's eat really lot, no, there's no weight a lot class. of rice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, at Nichidai, there was probably 30 guys and most of them were over, you know, way over, you know, 180 minimum, you know, there's only like few, three or four guys and I was 65 kilo. So, you know, they, I was getting murdered there. Right. But, um, I came back, made weight. Um, I remember my grandmother calling me right before I was supposed to go to the trials and, and said, Hey, they canceled. Jimmy Carter just canceled the, the Olympics. You know, that was the first time I heard about it. Right. Cause my, my grandmother called me, my mom's mom. And I'm like, Oh, Okay. And, you know. So I, could you imagine, I mean, that's heartbreaking, I'm sure, but uh, just a little side, I thought that's kind of funny in some ways. This Nowadays, everybody's getting their, their media from social media, and, and the first person who told <laughs> you was your grandmother, grandmother, of all people, right? <laughs> I could only imagine the news coming from grandma. So I talked with Keith a lot about this, and so at first I didn't realize you guys had already known that this was going to be canceled before you went to the trial. So you were kind of going to the trials hoping that maybe maybe— Carter would change his mind. Yeah, or we knew we knew it was canceled, but at the same time, there was kind of talk in the air that hey, maybe they could reverse it because there was all these things going on at the time. So we we didn't know a hundred percent, you know, like it wasn't definite, you know, right. um, or maybe it wasn't. We were just hoping. I, I don't know, but but I, I it wasn't definite. And then then I made the team, and then after that, you know, we kind of it was confirmed, and and then we went to Washington on this this kind of you know you know, goodwill tour or whatever it was. We met the president, you know, Washington, uh, pick up the congressional Carter, medal, pick up the congressional medal. Um, it was, it was an intense moment, you know, because a lot of the, um, a lot of the older athletes who, you know, that was it. That was their last, last, last time, last dance, you know, they, they weren't happy, you know, so right. the, like a lot of the teams didn't even shake his hand, you know, but wow. I don't think I knew. I don't think I was old enough to understand the whole thing, anyway. You know, so at this time you're roughly 20 years old, so you still are. You're hungry at this point because you're at this point. You're probably just starting to feel like I'm a contender. Like I can, I can actually compete in the world. You know, you got a long career if you choose that at this point. Like so, right. I guess you're just hungry for at this point. You know, the Olympics are coming to LA in four years, and you just set new goals. That's it. That that's exactly right. So. You know, I was just waiting for the next tournament, really. To you know, I mean, it was a great experience to go down there and meet the president and everything. But um, you know, right after that, you know, school started, so I was at San Jose State. Um, plenty of training partners. That just happened to be the probably the best years of San Jose State as far as powerhouse. You know, with we had like Bob Berlin, we had um, Damon Keefe, we had you know. There was just everybody seemed to be there training. Plus, you had the, the international time. guys. You had uh, Padilla and Cerna that came in from Mexico, Serna, both uh, yeah. Olympians from the Mexico team. That's right. That's right. And we we had a whole bunch of people that really wanted to work out and get better. So um, it was a great experience there for three or four years. And then 
at the same time I was training at San Jose State, I was also going back and forth to Japan every year, you know, for probably four months out of the year. So back then, so we're in, in, in the early 80s, obviously you're doing tons of, I would assume since you're in Japan and like the sports science is not really, I mean, Japan has always been a little bit behind when it comes to that because there's so much culture and history involved in their, their idea of what proper judo training should be. So I'm assuming you're doing like tons of rounds of randori every night. 20. <laughs> so you're doing 20 rounds and, and you're probably doing that five or six days a week. Uh, yeah, every day. Yeah, pretty much every day. Wow. I mean, we wake up in the morning in Japan. It was, you wake up in the morning, six, go for a run through the neighborhood with these kind of like Marine chants, you know, with the team, the judo team, waking up everybody in the neighborhood, uh, which is kind of cool, you know, but it's a good thing I was with them. And so, and we would go to the park and we would do sprints and crazy stuff. Um, then come back, eat right at the dormitory. I was, I was staying at the dormitory. And then um, from there we would sleep and then wake up and go to the train at the case show, which is the police academy, which is probably a 40 minute ride on the, the Metro get there. You know, there's no warm up at all. There's no warm up. Like you get there, you got five minutes to warm up. You put your stuff on real quick. You grab somebody and you, you know, you do a bunch of Uchikomis that try to warm up. They ring the bell and then it's like one hour. So it's not a long practice, but it's a very intense practice because the, because the police, you know, are, are pretty intense. They're older guys. They're now these, you know, these are college graduates going into the police academy, subsidized by Japan to only train. That's all they do. That's their job. And you're a gaijin. And I'm a gaijin. Yeah. The, who they want to, you know, basically just, they don't want to be embarrassed by me. Right. So they're going to try to as hard as they can to throw me. Most of the time it was off the mat and they had this wood, you know, platform around the mat. So every time you hear the wood go boom, that means somebody's feet were like hitting the wood. <laughs> right. That's my memory of Japan as well. You have so much, uh, there's so many good, good guys in the dojo. And, and I saw, like, I used to think, man, this is just crazy. My body's starting to go down and I don't have any easy rounds. Like there's no, there's no easy rounds. And then I started looking around. I'm like, well, they're actually taking some easy rounds, you know, because they have their buddies every once in a while. They take a restaurant. Every... There was no restaurant when you're the when you're the foreigner and you're in there, and they, you just got a new fresh guy in front of you all the time. No, yep. So so we would go. Okay, so the police academy, we'd go back, eat, go back to sleep, and then uh, go. I would well, I would train at um, Nichidai, which started at three, three o'clock, and that would go to about six o'clock, you know. And at one point, I was actually going to another practice at the Kodokan. It lasted for about a week or two. And then, you know, because the, the, one of the doctors who was also a sensei, he said, like, Mike, you got to train harder than everybody else. And so now I'm training four times a, week, a day. And, and I tried that for two weeks, but my, your body just can't take that, you know. So right. I think I broke my finger, you know, and I got caught up in somebody's gi. So I couldn't really train for like a couple of weeks and... So of your time in Japan, I know that you were, especially after you'd been going there a while, you were welcomed and you had like, you know, like I, I know you mentioned earlier, you actually had a, a terrible email recently about one of your senpai that have recently passed. So I know that you've made a lot of great friends and you were toward the end, you were taken care of very well at Nichidai. Right. But I often wonder, because when I was there, there was, you know, I used to go to Tokai a lot and there wasn't a lot of technical training. It was a lot of battling, a lot of randori. 
but maybe it was because I was the foreigner, but there was not a lot of time to spend like technical training. Were you finding any technical training when you were there? No, there was zero technical training, except for the guy that just passed away, Akaboshi, Senpai Akaboshi, Yuji was his, was his first name. He's the one who picked me up at this Dakota Con, brought me to Nichidai. Um, we trained every single day. He, he was a freshman, so he, he stayed in the, with the, in the freshman, or maybe he was a sophomore at the time, actually. And I was with the freshman, um, but he would beat me up, you know, the first couple months, like we would just train every day. But then he, he's the only one who really started to teach me. Like he used to bring me in the corner and teach me gripping and, you know, just try to help me, you know, like for some reason, I don't know why, but whatever he taught me really worked because every time he taught me something, I would try it and practice like in the next, the next week it was, it was working. So like, he, yeah, I owe him a lot. I mean, you know, that's why I was kind of, you know, heart broken that he, he passed away and I didn't get to meet him again. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sad to hear your friend passing away, but the good side of this is that like, it's kind of neat that you have been able to keep in contact and that you were able to at least get a message from some of his friends of this, you know, of his passing. I know it sounds bad, but, but judo brought you a lot of great friends and you were very, you know, you were, you were respected in a big way in Japan. And I think that's kind of looking back on, I think it was like some of the yeah. great times in your life. And I, yeah. And I owe that to Yunusuke sensei really, because he came from Nichidai. He's the one who wrote him a letter, Kimura sensei and Takagi sensei, which was who, who both passed away. Takagi was world champion. Um, I think in 75 and, um, both of those senseis really helped me out. You know, I, I remember one day Takage, you know, Takage was a big guy. Like he was kind of like big and burly and like he would come in practice. And as soon as he walked in, like, um, you know, everybody would change, you know, you could tell like the, 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 the Kohais, you know, they would watch out for him. And they had these, this little, like this little code, like to their fur, fur, their forefinger would go up. That means he was like pulling in, <laughs> pulling in the driveway. Right? right. So as soon as that forefinger went up, man, people just ran like crazy. They just, they just went, did their stuff, you know, got in the dojo, cleaned the floor, did whatever they needed to do, you know, to, as he walked in the door. And then, um, you know, one day I was like round number 18, I was trying to hide behind a few guys cause I was dead tired. He came across the whole, walked across the whole mat and he just said, Swain, Swain. And he's walking, he's, he, he pulls these two guys apart and I'm like hiding behind him and he grabs me, pulls me out and then like points to somebody and like I had to stay out there another 10 rounds, I think, because all he said was, Jibunde, Jibunde, you know, it means you got to do it yourself. So he was, you know, he was basically what he was teaching me a lesson. Look, you were going to become the world champ. You got to do it yourself. Don't be waiting for somebody to come to you to ask you to work out, right? So you got to go seek your workout partners. Right. So between 1980 and 1984, uh, you're spending most of your time at San Jose State. You're obviously a student and you're going back and forth to Japan, like in the summers or, or anytime there's time off of school at San Jose State. Yeah, mainly summers. I would take care of summer. Then sometimes I would take a, like a semester off. So it took me maybe five and a half years to graduate because I, the other, you know, those maybe two or three semesters I was in Japan. Okay. Plus the summers, every summer. All right. So 84, uh, do you have much memory of exactly what happened in 1984? Los Angeles. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, yeah, no, you know, memory, I don't know. You know, it's a flash. Um, I remember my first match lasted like seven seconds. I, I think I threw the guy in seven seconds. It was, I think it was the fastest throw of the tournament. I'm not sure, but it was, it happened really fast. Um, he, I don't think he was a very, you know, strong guy. I'm, I'm I forget where he's from, but, but anyway, uh, 
Uh, that might have been my first or second match. I, I forget. But um, um, I ended up fighting this really tough Brazilian guy, Onomura, who threw me for a coca like right off the bat. Like, you know, he dropped Sayoi and I fell off the opposite side. Like, you know, he rolled, rolled off the opposite side. Right away he caught me. Then I just tried to, I could I just couldn't come back. You know, like I tried and tried and tried. And I had fought the guy before. In fact, the next, you know, six months later, I beat him at the Pan. I threw him for Paul or two Wazaris at the, at the Pan Ams. But um, that's what the Olympics are about. It's, you know, it's that one day. Yeah. Uh, it's, a t it's a tough one. And it was just, I just remember LA because it's be it was in LA. There was just a lot of people, a lot of friends, a lot of, just too much, too much of an emotional roller coaster. Roller coaster. Um, I had been doing pretty good in international in 83, 82, 83, 82. I won the Dutch open, you know, like eight, eight rounds beat the, you know, the Russian, I, I won then uh, the Belgian. There was a couple, couple opens I won. And then back then we had the U S open, which was a pretty tough tournament. They would bring 40 yeah. Brazilians, you know, you'd have the Japanese there. You'd have the Koreans there. They wasn't always the first team from Japan, but strong team. Right. So you didn't really have to go far to to get good. Now it's completely different. Now you're traveling around the world. You know, it's a, it's a whole different way to make the Olympic team. You know, there's no For trials sure. and yeah. So after '84, was there any piece of you that thought like that was enough, or were you like I'm I'm for sure going to '88? Like yeah, no, I was just getting started. Okay. Yeah, '84, I, I, I was 23 years old. I didn't have a whole lot of international experience, but I did have enough. You know, I, I had enough to place to play place a medal there. So right. I was really disappointed. You know, I mean, I was. It took like two months to to come back to normal, but then '85. Um, uh, was the the worlds in Korea, right? I knew I knew I I was on that team already, so I figured, okay, I've one more year, you know, I, I I've got to do do well at this this eight, at the worlds because I was eighty three. I went to Moscow in the worlds. I think I took maybe fifth or sixth, you know, like I I went I went, I went like three rounds. It was pretty good. Um, that was my first worlds in eighty three, and then eighty five was the next the second worlds really. So right, I you know I hadn't. Even though I went to the Olympics, if I would have fought in the Olympics in Moscow, I think it would have been a whole different story because I would have had a lot more experience, right. you know, but I so lost So for some of there. our younger listeners, the world championships didn't used to happen every year. It was only every two years. So um, it makes it a little bit difficult to make teams. They're a little bit more spread out. But so 1985. So, I mean, this is obviously like if I look at, uh, we talked, I, I talked with Keith about looking back in hindsight of a career and it's easy looking back on when the pinnacle of your career was. And from 1985 to 1989, it's uh, arguable that you had one of the best runs in the history of, of American judo. So yeah. in that the finals of three world championships, three consecutive world championships, in the finals of 1985, you won right. the tournament in 1987. In the finals again in 1989, it's like that's, uh, you know, f five years of, you're at the top of the world. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was, I didn't realize I did that until after 89, after the tournament and everybody was almost out of the venue. And then, uh, Neil Adams came over to me and he was interviewing me, you know, and he, he's like, Hey Mike, what does that feel like? Like you were just in three, you know, that's when it kind of dawned on me that, Oh, okay. Yeah. I, that was a pretty good run, you right. know? Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, 85, I probably felt the strongest, you know, 
honestly, you know, even stronger than in 87 physically, but I, you know, experience wise, it wasn't, wasn't there yet. Um, I fought, uh, I lost to An, An Byung Gun in the, in the, in the finals. Um, it was a tough match. I mean, we went back and forth, um, and he, he felt really strong. Like he cut a lot of weight, you know, he had won the, won the Olympics before that in 84 in, in Los Angeles. So he was tough, you know, he, so not to interrupt you real quick. And so in 84, you fought 65 kilos. Oh yeah. I was in. 65. So you made the change to 71 kilos and then took a silver at the world's the first year you moved. No, up. no, actually, actually 80, I was 65 kilos. Okay. So 80, 80, in, in, in 84, I was 71 kilos. Okay. So you yeah. already had moved yeah, up. I had, I had moved up in about 1982. Yeah. Okay. So really only got a couple of years experience. So you kind of found your, you found your, uh, your, your weight, you know, I like, found my weight class for sure. Yeah. I yeah. felt so much better at 71. I didn't have to cut weight so much. And yeah, I, I just felt perfect at that weight. So when I was a kid, um, watching judo, you know, was nothing like today. Let's, let's uh, get that clear. We had to wait for, um, the videos to come out. So we would get the 101 Epone videos and like sometimes it would be like, I know it sounds crazy with, you know, technology now, but we'd wait like two years yeah. <laughs> to see the Epone highlights from like the previous two years and everybody my age and I think the, an iconic name that is still strong today is is Koga. And for, uh, again, some of our younger listeners, everybody that's uh, your generation knows, but this uh, Koga went on to be one of the best judo players in the world and this was Mike Swain's you know, biggest rival for, for a period of time. And, uh, can you tell us about what it was like facing Koga? Was he, he was kind of coming up in the middle of your career and yeah. here's this new Japanese guy. And yeah, you know. to be honest, like, <clears throat> I think I fought him in, let's see, 86, uh, Kano cup was the first time I fought him. Of course I fought in the first Kano cup. That was 1978, right? This was 1986. I want to say 86. Um, and he was just coming up. And, um, I had already took second in the worlds, you know, I was, <clears throat> I heard he beat most of the top Japanese I had, I had beaten, um, in various tournaments. And here comes this young kid, 10 years younger, you know, uh, but everyone is talking about him. But at the same time, I'm like, no, I'm, I mean, I've been training in Japan for much longer, I, you know, so honestly, I was a little complacent. <laughs> Did <laughs> you ever train with him when you were in Japan? Never, never, never no. Um, um, only in a drinking contest. That was. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually done that with him as well. <laughs> <laughs> and, he's, and he's pretty strong. <laughs> um, but yeah, so in so in '86, you know, I, I was going into the finals of the Kano Cup, and and I felt really good. And um, I remember uh, Joe Marshall, who knew who knew him because he trained with him, same same university. He came. He goes, Mike. He goes, this kid's. You know, he, he didn't want to like ruffle me up. Like he didn't want to get me nervous about him. But at the same time, he was trying to tell me, Hey, be careful. You know, he's pretty good. And, and, um, he came in with a coach, coach, I think in the first 10 seconds that I thought I saw stars. Like he hit me with his shoulder. He tried, he didn't score on me, but, or maybe he did score. Yeah. I think he scored a, maybe a Coca or something. It hit me so hard that, like, I think he hit me right in the face or the chin or something, and I saw stars. Like, I had to take a moment to get up, and I'm like, oh, man, okay. <laughs> I remember, okay, Joe, I don't understand what you're saying, though. Um, but anyway, he was just so explosive and fast and quick. So I I didn't really understand what, what he had. And, you know, his, his obviously his Ipon Seo, he was one of the best in the world, kind of like a Ono's 
Uchimata, right? Like nobody could really stop it. So, so he caught me with that the first, the first time he caught me with that clean. Like that was, I've thrown the highest I've ever been thrown in my life. You know, like, um, that was, there was no, you know, I just went over and I was like, all right, that, that, that's over. <laughs> this was 86. This was 86 Kano cup, big tournament. You know, that, that was his big out coming out too. You know, that. So, so at this time, do you have like, so you got, this is 86, you're in between years of the worlds. Do you guys, is there, is like video review? Do you, get, do you guys have videos on people no, internationally? There wasn't, it was tough to get videos. I mean, and then it was hard to get them from the, the Japanese news, you know, media, you know, NHK was tough to get. You know, I would see them, but they had them, but it was yeah. not easy to get. Yeah. And then, and then, then I went to, um, I fought him again at the Shoriki Cup in January, which I, I didn't train much, you know, December, January, you're not training. Um, but I fought him again in, uh, and then I got thrown again, you know, same throw. So now I'm going into the worlds in 87 thinking, all right, two out of three, this is, this, you can't lose three times. Otherwise it's over. Right. So most, I, I you know, I think most people would pack it in, you know, and say, okay, I'm never going to beat this guy. But for something, I just felt like I could, I could beat him. You know I mean? He, he had the one throw, but he didn't have a, I, he wasn't that great on the ground. I was much better. Um, I was a lefty. He didn't like lefties. So um, anyway, I went back to Japan to, to, you know, to train. And I found this guy, Hayama, at Nichidai. And he was exactly a mimic of Koga. Like he fought exactly like him. He had the Seonagi, he had everything. He was from Nichidai, right? My, my dojo. So I was like, hey, uh, want, want to come to America? <laughs> so he came to America and we sponsored him, you know, I kind of helped him out. He stayed with me probably three or four months, I think, you know, and he trained at San Jose State with me every single day. And he came in on me with that say, every single day and caught me sometimes, you know, and, but I got better at it. And um, really, he helped me a lot to, to, to beat Kogo, you know. That's that's huge. Ultimately, I mean, that that short story you just said kind of reminded me of a more recent time where you guys brought in a player from Japan for Marty, which you know I think played a huge part in some of her most successful days when Aiko she had Sata, right, right. Yeah, when Aiko was around here, I think that's when Marty was at that's her peak. Right. That's absolutely right. Michael Jordan once said, "Obstacles do not have to stop you. If you run into a wall." Don't turn around and give up. Figure out how to climb it, go through it, or work around it. From 1985 to 1989, Mike Swain fought in three consecutive world finals. He also captured an Olympic bronze medal in 1988. This amazing achievement did not come without challenges. One of the major obstacles for Mike Swain was Toshihika Koga, one of the best competitors in the history of judo. For some, this challenge would pose too big of a problem, but Mike refused to give up. He just trained harder made adjustments to his training, and kept his eye on the prize. After two consecutive losses to Koga, he finally beat him in the quarterfinal of the 87 World Championships in Essen. Mike Swain was on top of the world. So, um, I mean, you had this five-year period that you were clearly on top of the world, and this is where I think that the lessons that you have and the, the, if you had a way to, you know, I'm always talking about like mindset, you know, I'm trying to talk to the kids in the dojo and mindset is tough. You know, we all know that the mind, the mind is so important and it's a part that's sometimes overlooked in our training. We spend so much time doing physical training and maybe not as much thinking about our mindset, but 
something that you were able to overcome. I mean, I, I, I say the finals, but really it's like the semifinals of breaking into the finals of like, what was it like when you were on deck for three different world championships, when you're walking onto the mat for the finals of the world championships, like what's going through Mike Swain's mind? Yeah, that's, that's a, um, <clears throat> that's interesting question. <laughs> I know, I know the first time I was on deck for the, for the finals of the worlds, like in 85, um, I was relieved because I, I won the semifinals, right? Like that was big. I beat this French guy, Dio, who was really good. And, um, for me to be in the finals, you know, um, I don't know if, I guess I was the first American in the finals. I, I think I, maybe I wasn't, I, I don't remember, <laughs> but, but it was, I was in the final, right? Like, and it, for me personally, I couldn't get there, you know, for a long time, like 10 years, you know, or whatever, eight years. And so I think I was happy to be there, you know? Right. And, and I was just happy to be there. I tried hard, you know, like, of course I didn't think I was going to lose, like, you know, I wasn't afraid of the guy, even though he was Olympic champion. I knew I had a chance, but I was just really happy to be there. The second time I was there with um, Alexander, like this is after I beat Koga in the, in the, I finally beat Koga, right? In the, in the, actually the quarterfinals. Okay. And then the next one where I fought the North Korean was another tough guy, you know, like really tough guy. And I beat him. And that was the semifinals. So when I got to Alexander, there wasn't a doubt, a single doubt in my mind that I wasn't going to win that that like it, it was different from the 85 and 87 85 I was happy to be there 87 was like there's no way I'm gonna lose like uh you know I, I, I'm not gonna lose you know I, I just didn't even have a feel I almost actually you know you have this out of mind experience like where you I was actually watching myself compete while I was competing that was I don't I don't know how to explain that but like on certain parts of the matches like I was watching myself fight which I've never, that has never happened except for that, for that one match, you know, in the finals. I, I, I think it's unexplainable. <laughs> I mean, I think that that's what some people would refer to as being in the zone where you just kind of have guess. this time where it just kind of goes by. Yeah. And, you know, I think that, you know, obviously preparation makes that happen. You know, you were, right. you didn't have things to worry about like conditioning, you know, as long as you're prepared, you know, the last thing you want to do is go to a world championship and not perform well because you weren't in good condition, but being in good condition, you can eliminate that possibility. Right. Now it comes down to like, who's the better judo player that day? You know, conditioning is not a piece of it. It's not something you're not going in there thinking, I don't want to get tired. I just want to go in there and perform to the best of my abilities. And the 85 experience was huge to get you to that peak, I think in, in 87. Right. Right. Exactly. So it's confidence. That's all, you know, that's really, all. you have to get, you have to stick stick in it until you get that confidence. And, um, you know, it's great to have a dream and, you know, all that stuff, but it really is just a grind. It's a daily grind. I think you, you, you know, mindset, you wake up every day and you have to do what you need to do. You know, like you got, got to run, you know, if it's raining out, um, for me, I would just think about what is my opponents doing in Korea or, you know, what's on doing right now. You know, like, the, and that would instantly motivate me. I don't know why, but, you know, like I, you know, and so I go for my run or, you know, at, when I was training for 87, <clears throat> I was sponsored by this company called Chips and Technologies. So when I graduated San Jose State, I went into this like Olympic job program with a high tech startup. It was a, they made uh, semiconductor chips and, um, it was an alumni, you know, from San Jose State, Gary Martin. He kind of got me into the company. But 
it was great because I was thrown into this, you know, work, work life, you know, now I'm working. So now I'm waking up training, going to work, uh, training in the afternoon, you know, lunchtime and then going to judo. And this I was, is prior to 87. You this, were already working full time. Yeah. This is prior to 87. You know, people thought I was, you know, um, sponsored, you know, like by Nike or something, because I remember there when I was in Japan, I won the worlds and then we went to, uh, uh, Sports Illustrated flew in to Tokyo, went to the to the Castro, to the police academy, set up all these lights, and they had to ask the right people. I had to bring him in. And, you know, in Japan, you got to do it the right way. You can't just walk in and put lights up. So I got to ask the right permission and took him, took him around. So, you know, when I, and then, when, then I had to work out, you know, with all the Japanese. So they thought, they probably thought I was like super sponsored, you know, like, you know, right. by Nike or somebody, cause they have all these, these cameras. And, but in, in reality, it was just sports illustrated doing an article and <laughs> right. I had very little money at the time, but, but anyway, I, you know, I, I guess back to the mindset thing, I, um, you know, I had to work, I had to train and that really set me, you know, it really focused me, I think, cause I had no time to do anything else. Absolutely no time. You know, when you have a lot of time to do a lot of things, that's when, that's when bad things get in the way. But, but, you know, you, I just stayed focused because of that. So you kept on going to, uh, obviously to the 89 worlds, you're in the finals again, you're working at chips this whole time. Yeah. Uh, from 86 all the way to like 90, 91. Okay. Yep. And so I, I think you retired somewhere in there, right? You retired and then came back for 92 Barcelona. Is there something like yeah, that? Yeah. In 89, you know, like I've, I've, I, I, took second in the world. I fought Koga again in the finals. <clears throat> I felt the best against him out of all the matches, to be honest with you. And it was a very close match. Um, and he beat me with this little, like, I don't know how he was able to, my gi was up to my elbow at the time. <laughs> I don't know was how, how he was able to grab it, you know, because I mean? we all had tailored gis and it wasn't, wasn't like it is now. But um, including him, though, you know, he had tailored gis. Sure. But, but, like, he had this really quick little coca, you know, that, that, that got it. But anyway, after that, um, I fought one more tournament at the Goodwill games in Seattle. And then that was, I, that was really it. You know, at that point in my life, I was starting, well, I got married in 91. Okay. You know, to, 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 to Brazilian. <laughs> yeah. So uh, again, yeah. some of you guys that don't know Mike Swain's story, there's a, a lot of Olympic success in, uh, in his family. So Mike married the Ashiwaza specialist from, from, uh, Brazil, who's, uh, uh, Tanya Ishii. Yeah. And her father also was, I, I could be wrong this, but I think he was like the first Olympic medalist from Brazil. From Brazil. Yeah, sure. He's a bronze medalist in, uh, Munich. Okay. And he won, and, and the world's too. Yeah, he was he, but he they, so her family immigrated from Japan to to Brazil in the late sixties, and then um, uh, she was born in Brazil. She fought, you know, for the Olympics. We went to the Olympics together in ninety two. Um, she she was tough. She she won a lot of tournaments. You know, a lot of good international tournaments. Pan Am champion. So yeah, we were. Um, yeah. So we just went. We Gino just went couple. by like a, a multi year period, like in a real quick time. So so you meet. You meet Chie, and um, and then you're married. There must have been something in between. There. So, so I mean, are you guys on the circuit together? Are you going to tournaments? Like, how, how does our? Yeah, are we, you traveling to tournaments together? No, or? I met her in eighty. Yeah, that's the only time I saw her at tournaments. But okay, because we met in eighty six um, at the Pan Am's 
championships, I think, in Puerto Rico. Um, and then we were married in 91. But in between, um, not much, you know, she was living in Brazil. I was living in America. And she, we would meet, you know, at certain tournaments and stuff like that. And at the end, you know, she came and visited for a little bit. But honestly, physically, I, I probably only saw her for two months before we got married. Wow. Physically meaning, you know, we were in the sure. same place. Yeah. Know? Yeah. That's a cool story. So, yeah, so she comes, I, I think I remember her telling me she had, she had like some kind of major injury or something. Didn't she have a, a bad knee or something? Had yeah. A surgery? She, she had bad, bad knee uh, surgery. She in, uh, Mo- not in Moscow, but uh, somewhere in, in Soviet Union, she, she got hurt and um, uh, Tbilisi, Tbilisi. And then she ended up coming to America, getting surgery, you know, with Dr. Treb, you know, right here in, in San Jose. Yeah. And that, that's a whole story in itself. Cause, cause you know, that we're in the, we're in the doctor's room and, and the doctor goes, well, he goes, you have insurance? And, you know, looks at her and she goes, no, I'm from Brazil. And he goes, well, you know, like if you guys were married, you know, like Mike's insurance could take care of it, but you know, and, and we kind of knew we were getting married at the time. And so we drove, we drove from the hospital, from that doctor's room to the marriage to, well, actually, city we, hall. Went, we went home first because she wanted to change out of her sweats. And then we went to City Hall, got married, and I called him up and I said, all right, we're married. And he just couldn't believe it. Like, he put us on speakerphone, brought in all the nurses. What a great story. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, she had surgery, you know, and then, uh, yeah, yeah. So this is 91, and then you... Um it, so what? How, how do you end up making the '92 team? Did USA Judo? USA Judo is kind of wanting wanting yeah, you to come back. You know, kind I had of... to win the trials. You know, to, I had to make the team. But but um, USA Judo was asking me to come back. I was kind of you know half in, half out. And you know that's another life lesson. Is you know as soon as you lose focus on something, it's probably not a good thing. So in '89 or '90, I started to kind of think about starting my company. You know, my mat company. Yeah. Um, because I was working at Chips and then I was kind of had the idea and I started working on it. I actually started bringing in orders, you know, like, like in 90 while I was working at Chips, you know, and then I figured, well, this is no good. You know, like I'm doubling, like I'm using their phone to get orders, you know, like they're calling me at, at, at work at Chips, you know. How did you get started in the mat business? I mean, is this? Uh, After 87, this guy approached me and he wanted to sponsor me you know, from the, this company, uh, in Belgium. And, um, I said, well, you know, you know, why don't you come visit? And he came and visited and actually ended up in Yosh Uchida's office. And Yosh called me and said, Hey Mike, your, your buddy's here. Why don't you come here? So that's how, that's how it all Yosh was, again. was he the president of USA Judo at the time or something? I think he was, yeah. Like he was involved in the politics. So he had, he had come to visit, to see Yosh, you know, to see how he can build his business. Okay. So in 92, you're kind of uh, coming out of retirement, but you're a little bit more focused at this time on on building your business, it sounds like. Yeah, I was focused on building my business. I was still in decent shape. I mean, I was training every day and everything, but probably four months before the Olympics, I, you know, I broke my rib in, in a tournament in Hungary. And, um, you know, at that point, it was kind of like, you know, it's it was tough to come back. You know, like, you know, I, I took a month off and then I ended up, the first practice was in Japan, you know, after a broken rib that what that didn't go over too well. Um, but I did, I was able to come back and, you know, it, I was good enough to fight for sure. You know, like, I, you know, I wasn't training at my best, but I was good enough to fight. Um, but a really weird thing happened 
like a, a lot of people don't know this story, but a super strange things happen. You know, so so at the time I was sponsoring the the whole Olympic team with the S mark. You mm. know, the the, yeah. the S. You know, because that was that was my mark. You know, the S that is now Kuzakura. Like we design, I designed that. You know, like I had somebody design that in New York. So that was my gi line, and then the whole Olympic team was wearing it. And so as I yeah, and you had to get these stamps. You know, you had to check your gi in and get a stamp. So anyway, I'm fighting. The day I'm fighting, I weigh in. You know, I go to the, to the, to the mat side and I've got Yoneska at my side and, you know, and the manager and I, you know, they hug me and all that stuff. And Yoneska says, okay, I'm going to go over here. And the manager leaves. And then the guy checking the gi comes over and he goes, Hey, you come here. He goes, you got to take that gi off and put one of these Mizunos on. Cause your gi doesn't, it doesn't have a stamp. And I'm like, no, I mean, I can't, I can't do that. Like th this is my, my company and it's, I'm spot. That would be ridiculous. You know, like I can't do that. Like he goes, well, you got to do it. Otherwise you're disqualified. And my gi was like outside the venue next to the, you know, in another building through three security checks. He goes, all right, you got five minutes. And so I took off running. I s took off running, went through all the gates, security, got my gi, came back, you know, had to wait in line a little bit through one security gate I'm sprinting. I get there and I put, got my gi on. He's, he looks at me and he goes, okay, go ahead. And so now I'm, I'm walking up to the mat, realizing that my heart rate's at, you know, through the roof. Cause I'm, I just got done with three 100 yard dashes. Right. And, <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm looking at this North Korean staring at me and I'm going, what the hell what the fuck am I going to do now? <laughs> so I'm trying to breathe. I'm trying, I'm stalling, right? Like the referee's like, get on the mat. Get, Cause they're, they're mad at me anyway for make, making them wait. Right. You know, the refs are. So finally I get on the mat and, um, this guy comes running at me. Like he's going to double leg me, right? Like right at me. Like maybe cause he knew I was like huffing and puffing. I don't know. <laughs> so I double leg, I sprawled out and then he jumped on my back and arm locked me. And oh, it was no. over. That was my, that was my last Olympic, uh, experience, you know, and this is a guy that I had beaten before, you know, he was tough, but he wasn't that tough, you know? And, and, and also the night before I heard, I, I learned that Kogo got hurt working out. Like he tore his knee up okay. like, real bad, you know, before the 92 Olympics, he slipped on a mat or so. I don't know what, something happened. So I was like, oh man, this is it. This could be it. Right. Right. And then. You know, Haitos, the guy who fought him in the finals, I had beaten Haitos like three times, all by, you know. He's a Hungarian. Hungarian guy. I just, I had his number. He was, I was left. He was maybe left. I don't know why, but I had his number. So I'm thinking, man, this, I could do this. Like, I could walk right into this. And of course, my, it was a nightmare. Yeah. Right. Anyway, that was my, that was my story. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I mean, it too often. at least it's a clean ending, you know. I mean, at, at 92, at this point, you didn't obviously you don't go out on the top of the world, but you had your time at the top of the world, and I think that your experience in 92 made it crystal clear. You'd recently been married. Your business is, I, I assume, it's starting to take off at this point. You know, you're selling geese, you're selling mats, and yep. now you've kind of got a new vision, and your new vision is to like, you know, maybe build a family and and build this business. Yeah, exactly, absolutely. I, honestly, I was super tired. I didn't want to fight anymore, and. Um, should have retired in 89, but you know, I hung in there and I, it's, I, I don't regret it, you know, but, but, uh, I got to go to the Olympics with my wife. <laughs> so, you know, for, from Brazil. So, you know, that it was, it was a good experience and, 
But yes, after that, I was relieved and time to move on. I think a lot of people in the sport world and, you know, even more recently as the topics of mental health come up and, you know, people talk about athletes and how they struggle to kind of move on to new things after their competitive careers are over. And, I, and you know, being involved in different things is huge. You know, the fact that one, you know, in your early days, you were a student, you weren't just a judo player. You, were, you always had something else going on. You know, in the beginning, you were a student, had your peak career where you were sounds like most of those years you were actually working pretty much full-time job. Um, then you started a business as you continued. So I think all of these extra efforts kind of have made Mike Swain who he is even today, all these years later. Yeah. Yeah, probably. You're right. You know, the way I did it was not, it was atypical, you know, it was, um, yeah, to, to work full-time and to, to, to train is, is, is not easy, you know, um, to go to school, full time, you know, and, and to get your degree and, and keep at a level internationally is not easy. Um, but in the end, it all helped me, you know, it all built me into this, you know, my, you know, it gave me strong character, strong mindset to, to move on and start my own business, you know, like, and I, and I literally went from, uh, actually I, I take that back. I probably, I, I stopped chips in 91 cause to take a year off for 92, but at that time I was, I was in my garage working like I, okay. At that point I like, I quit chips and now I'm starting this new business and this is the year of the Olympics. Right. So that was kind of tough. You know what I mean? I would, I would, that, that's where I said I lost focus. You know, my focus was because to start a new business in your garage, you know, and, and you got to make the, and I bought a new house, you know, so you got to make the rent payment. You got to make, you know, there's a lot of things you got to make. I didn't have any kids at that point. So that was, that was the one good thing. Right. Right. Cause I don't think I could have handled it at that point, but, um, you know, I was able to, uh, after the, you know, after the 92, uh, Barcelona, I, I was able to focus completely on business and within two or three years, then boom, I was, I was, I was back up and running well, you know? Yeah. So, business. so full disclosure, I mean, for a lot of you guys that know Mike or know me, um, I've actually known Mike for a really long time. The first time I met Mike, he wouldn't remember, but uh, <laughs> high school nationals for me. It was like senior year in high school, and uh, Mike was there doing a seminar during the tournament, and I, I actually had a horrible tournament. I just didn't do very well, and I wasn't sure what I was in. I was a lot, a lot like you. I thought I would wrestle in college possibly. I had a pretty decently successful you know, high school wrestling you know, career, not nearly as good as I expected it to be at the end. And, you know, here it's like March wrestling season finishes and I'm not sure what I'm going to do. So I go to the high school nationals, which is in March and I meet you and I fight in the tournament. I kind of had a bad tournament and you're sitting in the stands watching the tournament. And so my mom was there with me and she's like, well, let's just go talk to him. So we actually walked up to you in the, in the stands of this, you know, high school tournament. And I said, Hey, you know, my name's Chuck. And like, I want to get good at judo. Like, what do I do? It was, and I, I still remember you said, well, like, you need to go to Japan and, you know, you should maybe go to San Jose State, you know? Right. I'm like, right. okay. <laughs> and uh, you gave me the phone number that that day. You said, all right, well, here's Dan Hatano. He's working in Yosha's office and oh, uh, right, right. he can help you get set up with the school. And I, you know, I think my mom called Dan the next morning and, uh, you know, a month or two later is kind of way late thinking like, I'm just about to graduate high school. I still didn't really know where I was going to go, but I got kind of a late, you know, acceptance to San Jose State. Right. Um, my spring break, which was April, I actually came to San Jose State to visit. Parents just said, I go and I, I got in my own truck. I drove to San Jose State, my spring break of my senior year. Right. All my buddies went to the river. 
I went to San Jose State, and uh, Dan's like, yeah, yeah, we'll take care of you. You know, come to practice, check it out. So I'm in practice the first night, and uh, we go through a practice, and the practice is hard. I'm a high school student still. I'm getting right. kind of destroyed. I don't really know anybody on the team other than Tony Okada, who is from Southern California. That's right. He oh. was on the team at the time. And uh, end of class comes out, and uh, we're bowing out. And Dan's like, oh, uh, yeah, we got this kid named Chuck at the end of the line over there, and uh, he needs somewhere to stay. Who, who, whose house can he stay at? <laughs> and it was like crickets, you know, like— one guy, Ilya Ronin, San Jose State alum, he's like, I'll take Chuck. So, But Ilya's living in the dorms. So I end up going, I spent like three nights in Ilya's dorm room. Look, honestly, it was kind of fun. You know, like I thought it was pretty cool. I was pretty excited to go to San Jose State. So ended up coming to San Jose State. So I'll fast forward a little bit further. 1995, this is like partway through or toward in the middle of my first year. I'm in the locker room and Mike Swain says, hey, Chuck, uh, you got a job? <laughs> I said, no. He's like, you got a car? I'm like, yeah. He's like, you want a job? I'm like, sure. He's like, all right, you start tomorrow. Uh, what time does class get out? I'm like, I think around 12. He's like, all right, beat him in my office by one. So that was 1995. And you're still here. And uh, what is it? Is it 2020? <laughs> uh, so it's it's been very fortunate. So, you know, American athletes, we don't have sponsors. You know, we still don't. Most of the top athletes still don't. So for me, like working, you know, part-time through school, selling mats, it was kind of a, a good way to have a flexible job. I worked for you part-time all the way through college. Right. In 2000, you know, I still remember like, you know, you shooting me an email, you and Keith, and you said, Chuck, it's time to leave. Like you, you got to go. And at the time I was working for you, the business is doing well. And I know that that wasn't the right thing for your company to like, just push me away. Yeah. But you actually told me, say, Hey, look, you need to move to Japan. Yeah. So yeah. I bought a one-way ticket, moved to Japan. And, you know, I spent like half a year there, ended up coming back. You hired me back and I'm working for you all these years, but it's, it's been, uh, <laughs> well, uh you, you had a good career yourself. I mean, Pan Am champ and you made, you made the world team. Right? Yeah. I made the world team yeah. in 2003 yep. and, you know, yep. I had a lot of great experiences in judo and I look back at like, you know, I didn't throw everything into judo and have nothing afterwards. And I think that a lot of people have done that. That's where I go back to like your career of, of spending time as like an entrepreneur, even while you were still an athlete. And I think that those times that you learn where you didn't throw your eggs into one basket, right, that could right. be bad in some ways, but you know, and looking back, like I, you know, I, maybe it would have been better for my career if I had a little bit more focus and it wasn't working or, but you know, th there was not a lot of other options at that time. There's no professional judo players in America as we know. No, and no. it just kind of is what it is. So that's why, that's why San Jose state, you know, it's a great place to train because <clears throat> you know, or any college really, but you know, just San Jose State happens to have a judo program, you know, but if you can train and finish your degree at the same time, I mean, that's, that's a win-win situation, you know, cause either, cause judo, I mean, it's just, you know, you're not going to make a living, you know, a, a, a living out of it. Well, although we, here we are making a living out of it a little bit. Yeah. Right? Something that's somewhat related, we, you know, we, we get to spend mass. time. <laughs> yeah. But, 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 it, you know, obviously there's, there's many more markets than, than judo mats, but, but, yeah, you need the the degree, you need the the experience, the work experience, and those are the two things that are critical, right? To to get the 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 uh, the rowboat to get to, to start the boat going, right? Like sure. yeah, you need that. So all of your years of judo training and your perseverance and like the you know the fight in Mike Swain, like how can you relate that to like the way you tackle and the way you went after business, like when it comes to competitors, when it comes to difficult time with financing or different things that you've kind of, you know, encountered in your business career, how can you relate some of the ways that you handled those situations in business as to the lessons that judo taught you as a younger man and like, you know, fighting on the mat? 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I mean, let's face it, judo training and is much harder. I mean, I think you know, um, you know, you're someone's trying to choke you, someone's trying to arm lock you, someone's trying to throw your head into the head into the ground. I mean, if you could last twenty rounds of that, you know, I mean, you, you, everything else is easy. You know, uh, obviously, when you start to have a family. You know, you have to start, you know, money comes involved, you know, there's, there's different types of levels of stress, you know, that's a little bit more stressful, but, but, you know, that, that whole training, the regiment, um, the day to day daily grind is really the same stuff that works in business. You know, it's, it's no different, you know, that's why I say like, everyone wants to have a dream, you know, like do follow your dream sounds good, but you have to just wake up and work every day, you know, like you have to just get up and do, do your stuff, <laughs> take care of your stuff, you know, like don't, you know, you can't have any excuse, no excuses. You know, I remember, uh, Pat Burris, uh, another, you know, judo sensei, he also trained in Japan a long time. And he's just saying, you know, you use any excuse, you'll use any excuse. You just can't use any excuses. You know what I mean? It, there's, there's no excuses for, for trying to build a business or trying to win a gold medal or whatever it is, you know, you have to, you have to go through, push through the, that wall, you know? And, and so you wake up every day, you do what you need to do, you know, and that's, that's really, and, and you have faith, you know, you have to believe that it's going to work. Right. And you, that's where that confidence comes in where, you know, all it takes is that one match, you know, that one world championship bronze medal or, or whatever it is, Pan Am gold medal, something that says, Oh, I can do this. You know what I mean? So it's that one sale, you know, Oh, I can do this. You know, it's a, it's the same thing. You know, it's a little bit of faith, a little, a lot of hard work. So not being scared to compete is a big thing. I remember this is another kind of small thing I remember. So I was a, just a part-time employee at Swain sports back in the day. And I still can remember the day we're, we're sitting in the office and we got black belt magazine, you know, all the, all the martial arts magazines would show up at the office and at this time, uh, you had sold your company, bought your company back. There's a couple of things. I know this, we can go on for hours with this <laughs> stuff, but, um, there was an ad for a new company. And I remember a guy in the office, like kind of like upset, you know, like, ah, oh, what are we going to do? There's another person selling mats. Oh, right. And you didn't have that. You looked at it and you kind of like tossed the magazine. You're like, so what? We got a competitor. Let's do this. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I mean competition's good. Competition makes you makes you better. You know, the uh, the more competition, the better. You know, um, obviously it's better to dominate <laughs> dominate right. your competition. But but uh, yeah, you definitely can't be afraid of competition for sure. You know, I mean that's. I mean, ultimately, we you know we both now work for for Dolomar. You know, and Dolomar bought our com my company. Or I call it our company, really, because you were part of it for such a long time. 10 years, more than 10, 11 years ago, you know, and at that moment I'm thinking, well, when I first started the business, I'm thinking, all right, this is going to last maybe two or three years, you know, and selling mats. I mean, come on. And then, you know, and then when I sold the Dolomar, it's like, okay, wait a second, their manufacturer, you know, this, this could go on, right? Because there's so many different markets and now we've kind of proven that, you know, now it's just, it keeps building. And even in this environment, we're doing, you know, we're doing pretty good, you know, so, and the wrestling's thriving, you know, the, we, we have gymnastics, um, fitness, martial arts. So it's, and, and the most important thing is we make a product, you know, like we actually manufacture it. We make our own foam, 
we make our own mats and it's made in America. You know what I mean? So it's a right. great, it's great to be part of that process, you know, rather than just, you know, it, like I was doing in the beginning, you know, importing from Europe and reselling it. I mean, that's great. You know, businesses are, are built, big businesses are built that way, but it's, it's better to manufacture something. So you spent about 20 years, I mean, I guess from the late 80s into 2008, when you ended up selling your company to Dollimer, it's a, you know, a huge success. And, you know, the humbleness that we see on, you know, Mike Swain, everyone that meets, meets you is kind of, you know, realizes your humbleness. And I think that that comes along from judo, but your humbleness, not only as a judoka, but as a businessman, that people kind of appreciate you and respect you for everything you've done off the mat. And also as a businessman, you know, outside of judo, you know, you have a lot of respect outside of the judo world, even that kind of trickled into other martial arts. And you've kind right. of, you've spent uh, a lot of years kind of creating like uh, friendships and relationships with some of the biggest brands in the martial arts and fitness industries. Yeah. I mean, that's where the hard work came in, right? Like for many years I had to, you know, get on a plane and go to a lot of trade shows, go to a lot of events, teach a lot of seminars, you know, meet people, the more seminars, the more people you meet, the more, you know, uh, um, gyms you meet, you know, like the more new businesses you meet, it's just, it's just a matter of relationships, you know? Right. And, and, um, I think I got the, 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 the humbleness from my parents, you know, my, but my dad, especially he's, you know, worked in the car business for all his life and car business is, you know, it's tough because, you know, right away, you know, they look at you like, you know, you're trying to rip me off, you know, <laughs> but my dad owned a bunch of dealerships and, and he was always well respected, you know, even by the people who were buying cars, which was, I was a little bit surprised, you know, they would come right. in and go, Oh, your dad, I love your dad. You know, he's, and like, he just sold them like, you know, two cars, you know, one for their, <laughs> one for a kid. So, so, and I think he taught me a, a empathy, you know, like you have to put yourself in their shoes and always worry about, not worry, but always take care of the customer and, you know, treat them right. Basically treat them right. You always have to, you have to make a profit, right. right. To, 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 to make a business profit is, the, is the key, you know, um, there's nothing wrong with making money, but at the same time, you know, if you're going to make good profit, you better treat your, you know, customer the right way. I think that goes a long way with, uh, to, to prove how you've built your business. And, you know, that goes along with like the lessons of martial arts, in my opinion, like we spend a lifetime talking about character development and, you know, the things that we, we learn through the practice of judo. And you've kind of had the success and the ability to kind of take that beyond the mat and into your business world and, and your business success and accolades, you know, they, they practically match what you did on the mat. And it's been, uh, you know, a huge area of success. You know, you've built a great business and you've built a great family and, you know, your kids practice judo. You have a, uh, your son, uh, so how old is Masa now? Masa's 23. Yeah, he's 6'3", and he's a, he's a basketball player. He's, um, he's trying to get in semi-pro in, in Europe. He's got, just got his master's, um, you know, went to, went to Bellarmine, which is a local prep school, went to, got his master's in the UK, um, and um, he's played basketball all through uh, his college career at Chaminade University in Hawaii. He's, you know, he got to go to Hawaii to go to college. That was tough, you know. Right. <laughs> Although I liked, I liked it too because I go over there and surf. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, he's doing well. He's doing well. Good. Six three. You know, he was doing judo. He quit judo when I think he was probably 
12 or 13. He was probably as tall as me. Right. <laughs> but, I, but I knew his passion was, was basketball. And my daughter's in Madrid, and she had a great, you know, uh, judo career. As a as junior, she won the Junior Pan Ams. Even senior, she won the Senior Nationals. She had a great career in that. But I think at heart, she's a she's an artist. So, <laughs> so she's living over, and she loves Madrid. So she's been living there for three years, teaching uh, as well. But that's got to be comforting for you and Chie. You've had, uh, you know, you got great kids, both of which are doing, you know, fabulous things and kind of exploring the world and and, and living their own dreams right now. Yeah, it's fun because we get to travel, and you know, and I watched Massa play in in the UK in the, in you know basketball. We went to visit Madrid, and then we you know we we go to Europe and meet our kids now. <laughs> so, right. So it's fun. Yeah. So as life kind of moves on, like one of the things that, uh, for you, like I never tell you this cause I work with you every day, but you've kind of always been an inspiration for me. Like for somebody who lives like a good, like even keel life and you take care of yourself, like your health, your family, you got a great family, your body's in condition and you kind of do things to, to, to embed yourself as a person, no matter how, you know, now you're, you're not the, uh, the 27 year old world champion anymore, but you still live life like a world champion. And I think people see that from the outside. And for people like me that grew up and you were one of the coaches when I was in my competitive career. So I've always kind of looked up to that and, and the way even now, you know, as you're older, the way you kind of take care of your body and take care of your mind and you kind of live life in this, like, you're like the ultimate judoka. Sort of. <laughs> so no, I don't, I don't I want to. Stay off, I stay off the mat now so I don't get hurt. No, that's not true. I, I, I try to work out. You know, obviously now it's a little bit different, but once we get back, you know, I'm, I'm always on the mat. Yeah. I mean, um, you've been involved at San Jose State for a long time. I know you've, you've yeah. kind of, you know, got your feet wet in the, the judo world outside of uh, competition. You were on the executive committee for a few years. You're still highly involved at San Jose State coaching and part of their executive committee. And, uh, yep. You know, see, judo's judo's always been there, and it's probably never going away for you. Yeah, it's not. I had fun. I had fun. You know, when Marty Malloy had her her run at it. You know, and be, you know took second in the worlds and bronze medalist. And you know, I was kind of her throwing dummy. <laughs> we used to work out, but you know, and 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 she's tough. Um, but I enjoyed working working out with her and keeping in shape. I love to do. I love to surf. That's my newfound passion. Um, I love the water. Um, Surfing. If I knew about Santa Cruz back in 1980s when I was going to school, I think my judo career would have went went down. It's good that you just <laughs> found out it's only beach. a 30 minute drive, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's that really keeps me in shape. And then um, my wife teaches yoga a lot, like hot yoga. So between yoga, judo, and um, surfing, yeah. Yeah, you do keep healthy. I mean, talking about Marty, I mean, during her years, so Marty was just coming up when I was coaching the team in the, in the you know, my, my later years of my competitive career, I was kind of running the practices and Marty was just coming up and she was like, we always knew she was going to be tough. You know, of course her Olympic and world success came later after I had kids and I wasn't on the mat at San Jose State anymore, but the energy that she brought to San Jose State for, you know, it was like, whatever, a five, six, seven year period where she was just like a world contender at one point. And I think she's, she has a similar story to you where she kind of had that breakthrough medal that said, Hey, look, I, I'm on top of the world. I can do this. And then she ended up with the Olympic medal and a world medal. And, yep. and it's, it was, it was a lot of fun for everybody at San Jose state to, yep. to be part of. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was actually announcing in in London with Neil Adams, you know, for the, for the stadium, I was one of the announcers, you know, during, during that time. So it was fun to watch her. Win a gold medal. Very fun. So oh, yeah, win, judo win, is... Win a bronze medal, sorry. Bronze, yeah. So judo's taking you full circle, everything from announcing. Uh, we were talking earlier today about pro judo, which you did, and we kind of say the pro judo. If you haven't seen pro judo, go look it up on YouTube. 
Uh, Pro Judo was like a really cool event. You brought in Neil Adams to do some commentating. Yep. Um, I still say to this day, you were just 15 years too early. Yeah, we were, we were right, right as the UFC was starting. Um, it was a great event. It was in New York. It was in a beautiful venue. It was on ESPN. You know, we had a good contract uh, with ESPN. We, we did um, also Pro Sumo. So, so I had a run at it, you know, but, um, yeah, judo's tough, you know, like it's, it's, well, it's, it's, it's tough because all of a sudden the UFC was there yeah. with a lot of money and you know, that, that, that once that hit, everything else was just kind of pushed to the side. Yeah. Judo's always struggled to get that spectator audience. You know, it's like, it's not the most uh, exciting thing to watch, especially if you're untrained and you don't really know what you're watching. It's, it's always, but that's the kind of changes that you were trying to implement at that time. Right. Right. I was, I was, I was trying to make it more like a UFC match, All right. but you know, I think deep down, I think judo's meant to be what it was when it started was just to build character. You know, it, it's great. It's wonderful for kids. It's good for adults too. You know, if you, if you know how to, how to tone it down and, 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 right. <laughs> and relax, you know, I mean, it's easy. Like when you talk about Brazilian jiu-jitsu, it's easy to relax when you're on the ground. You know, but, but when you're standing and, you know, you're throwing somebody and you're moving around, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to relax, you know, between two adults anyway. Sure. Two kids, no problem, but, but, but two adults. But I, I, I really think judo worldwide is still really strong right now. I mean, the IJF's done a wonderful job growing it throughout the world. Um, and then with all the, with all the videos, you know, that's on the IJ, TV, IJF TV, it's unbelievable. I mean, you can watch 20, 20, 25 grand slams all over the world, the best athletes. It's a, it's a wonderful, entertaining sport, you know, I mean, to, yeah, to in the, in the scope of things, the IJF is, is pretty young in the way they're promoting judo now. Cause like I, I retired from competitive judo in 2008 and it was, it was nothing like it is now as far as what's available and the way they're promoting these big, beautiful events with the grand slams and the grand prix and the, you know, all the right. world cups. So judo has come a long ways in, in, in pretty modern times. And I think that hopefully it continues to grow. I know Marius Wieser has a big, you know, a, a big outlook on things and I hope he continues to, you know, push judo to the next level. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure I'm sure you know USA Judo's. It's got a long way to climb, but you know at the same time we have you know we have a lot of professional sports, basketball, football. I mean we, you know, in in, <laughs> in different parts of the world they don't have those professional sports. So we're kind of we take we take the back seat to to all these sports, but it's we're definitely in a competitive environment when it comes to attracting athletes for judo, yeah. uh, especially when it comes down to the fact that like, there's not a lot of money and scholarships, you know, for example, wrestling a lot, even you, you were, you know, this close to, you know, choosing a wrestling career over a judo career. That's right. I'm yeah. not, you know, who knows how life would have turned out if that's the, if, if that's the path you would have taken. That's right. That's right. So, well, Mike, I don't want right. to keep uh, you forever. I do appreciate you coming on the podcast. I mean, this is awesome to sit here and talk. We can we can probably go on for hours, but we don't want to uh, stretch things out too much. But thank you very much for your time. Um, we're going to bring you on for another episode after we get this thing rolling. And we'll do uh, some roundtable with multiple guests at the same time. Yeah, I mean, Chuck, thank you very much. Um, I hope I wish you well with your podcast. I'm sure you're going to do a fabulous job. Cause you're a great sales guy. <laughs> I know you're going to do good. No, you, you, you know a lot about judo. You know a lot about the history of judo. You know, you have your own school, you have your own dojo, Chuck Jefferson judo, which is successful. So you're in it, right? You understand it. And so you can explain it and, 
and relate it to other people. And to the listeners out there, just train hard and stay humble. Thank you very much, Mike. I appreciate you being here. For listening to Judo Cast, please remember to hit the subscribe button on your podcast app. For show notes and additional content, visit judocast.com. That's J U D O Cast.com.